We're back. Empires of the Future. Today, we were just talking about this. So the family is, is sort of the topic today. Uh, and and this, the title of this article is The Power of the Two-Parent Home. But man, what a... The family, like such a personal concept, but then also uh, something that's very much beyond our control. You know, uh, it's, I'm sure it's a phrase uh, that somebody's told me, uh, you don't choose your family, you know, uh, you choose your friends, you don't choose your, it's somewhere in there. Something like that. And it hints at uh, sort of the tension that we live in for this episode, which is basically, uh, what does it mean? Uh, what, what exactly do we know about your family background and what it kind of drives in where your life is going. And so uh, if you're a social science person, then I would say this is a day for you mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, because uh, there's a lot of that. But then also it comes down to just very practical stuff, right? So this is going to be fun today because I, I know we're going to have to at least talk about a little bit of where we come from, each of us individually, yeah. uh, talk about our own families. We each have a family that we're trying to maintain and keep together. Mm-hmm. And um, I am thankful to read an article like this to learn and think about, yeah, what does uh, a certain kind of family do? For you and what doesn't it do? Uh, but you brought up this article. Why did you bring up bring up this article? Uh, well, I really more than anything brought up this article because I uh, found it. It's an article by Kevin DeYoung, uh, and I I'm a big. I, I mean, obviously we're doing a podcast, but I love listening to podcasts, and I uh, I've had his podcast pop up kind of on my suggestions for some time. Never have listened to it, but. Um, decided one day I needed something to listen to uh, as I was about to get in the shower. I like to like to listen to podcasts while I'm in the shower. So uh, perused down there, and and the title kind of caught my attention. The title of his podcast, which was essentially just him reading the article that he had written, uh, was called "The Power of the Two Parent Home." And and I thought, oh man, okay, this sounds intriguing. It sounds not only intriguing but I think relevant for our yeah. day and age. And, uh, yeah, and listened to it and thought, this is intriguing and this is relevant for our day and age. And he says a lot of things that I think um, growing up in the context I've grown up in, uh, living in the context that I live in, which is a relatively conservative, um, Protestant kind of world that I live in, I sometimes maybe take some things for granted. And I think this article kind of points to some of these things that I have somewhat taken for granted, accepted to be true. But as the article points out, the world, uh, much of the culture, even much of the culture within the church is sort of uh, maybe pushing against, but also maybe just letting go of, Mm -hmm. losing sight of um, unintentionally perhaps. And um, yeah, and so I thought, well, this would be something that'd be worth talking about, I think. so. I definitely agree. Two things came to my mind when I was thinking about talking about this, and that is uh, some criticisms that get leveled at evangelicals that I think have some truth in them that I want to bring up from the start. And one is that um, sometimes people from our tribe can idolize their families and uh, sort of use their families as an excuse. Um, Long story short to maybe, well... I don't need to serve God because the main thing God expects me to do is to care for my family. It's like, well, look, no, actually God clarifies how you should take care of your family. And if you have no desire to serve God in the kingdom and you're rationalizing that by saying, I give all my time to my family, well, you're not serving God in that way. Your family, if you idolize 
your family, it will betray you just like every other idol does. If you're living just for your family only, uh, though this may sound strange to some people, look, you should live for the Lord first and your family will come into line underneath that. And, and so that's just there. I want to acknowledge that from the start because the other thing that is more commonly heard is this. Well, you guys talking about how the nuclear family will solve everything. Um, what I'm going to be arguing for, yes, is a two-parent home consisting of a male and a female who are married, a husband and a wife who then have children. Um, but in addition to that, I'm arguing for what I believe the Bible argues for, and that is the extended family that then falls into line behind it, um, having its place. Yes, the Bible says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. So there is a guard around that relationship. But the goal then is that guard is there just like a fence around your property. So you know where your responsibility ends and where your neighbor's responsibility begins. And this all is all of a piece. This all fits together then. And that's what uh, I ultimately do want to argue for. And I want to say that because I think it's too easy. A part of what's going on with this research is it's too easy to dismiss this in the time that we live and to go, well, that's the way it used to be. And we've figured out ways to redo all of this, to make it up as we go. And we're solving uh, any of these issues ourselves. Look, if you look at social science research, no, you're not. The way we are remaking what it is to be human is having enormous costs. Yeah. And if you look at the social science research, this is not a, this really isn't, I don't say this lightly. It's not a really disputable matter. Yeah. What's best for children. It yeah. really isn't. And if you, I, I, I challenge anyone to actually look at the data because we're going to have a lot of data here. It's not very disputable mm -hmm. at all. What's good for children is to have a stable two-parent family so that they can thrive. It, it, and so that, that's where we're going with thank this. You, I want to be really not, clear. <laughs> thank you for not burying the lead. There, <laughs> right. Yeah, no one has to wonder what the point is here. That is the point. The, I think what you're saying too, um, and should be said, like the point of this article is not really intended to be an attack on parents, an attack on adults. Mm -hmm. um, it's intended to just frankly and honestly say what is best for children, like you said. Right. So this is an article about um, children more than it is about, about uh, parents, adults, um, even though what is necessarily going to be best for children is a, uh, a certain kind of lifestyle on the... Uh, on the on the um, on the adults, right. so um, so that is kind of something to be said here that we are going to talk about some stuff here that uh, some of our listeners maybe will say, well, that wasn't the case for for me raising my kids and they turned out okay, or right. maybe that wasn't the case for me and my situation growing up and right. I turned out okay, and right. um, and yes, that that can happen and has happened and. We're not saying that 100% of the time, if the criteria right. we designate aren't met, that there will be doom. Um, but it is to say the numbers, all of the research, there is not research that, that hardly anyone has ever put forward to the contrary. All of the research suggests that this leads to the best outcomes um, percentage-wise than any other setup, and right. that is a two-parent home. Right. Right. Why don't you... Uh hit that first bullet point there because most of what we've been saying is put a little more carefully in that first one. Yeah. Uh, Kevin DeYoung is a much more eloquent guy than we are, isn't he? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so here's the quote. 
Humanly speaking, there is nothing more important for personal well-being, positive social behavior, and general success in life than being raised by one's biological parents committed to each other in a stable marriage. Over the past 40 years, a vast body of research has demonstrated conclusively that children are deeply affected by family structure and that married parents are best for children. Any efforts, whether governmental, educational, or ecclesiastical, that mean to encourage human flourishing must take this reality into account as both an explanation for many societal ills and as a means to the end of hoped for societal health and vitality. Um, man, you can't say it any more clear-cut than that, that, hey, if you want to bring about the best human flourishing, then the nuclear family, essentially two-parent home, where the parents are married to each other and the parents and the biological parents of these children is uh, the best setup. If that's what you care about, human flourishing, that's the best setup. Right. And, and so obviously he brings in the phrase humanly speaking to start because, look, God can do whatever he wants. And we live by his mercy and his grace every day. Amen. And God chooses whatever we know of it. He chooses to protect us from certain things. And he allows certain things to come into our lives that are very hard. And we don't know the answers to that. And that's one of the struggles of being human. But humanly speaking, in terms of the factors that we can influence, in terms of the decisions that we have, this is a bold statement. Mm hmm Nothing more important, if you want to talk about well-being, meaning holistic good for people, if you want to talk about positive social behavior, which is a funny, funny phrase that means, hey, do you, do you like being around people who are enjoyable to be around? <laughs> Let me tell you how you get there. Let me tell you the number one factor. Yeah. It is a strong family. We don't think this. We, we think individualistically. What, what makes people fun to be around? Oh, good sense of humor. And it's kind of like... Uh, yeah, uh, that's that's yeah. Everybody likes that, but um, those things don't grow uh, just anywhere. You know, uh, you you don't go up to a homeless person and say, "Hey, tell me a good joke." <laughs> and there's a reason why. And these are just deeper matters than we often think about. Um, but he's making very bold statements: general success in life, yes. meaning what are your goals? Okay, if you want to get towards your goals, why don't you keep your family together? Yeah, yeah. What's wrapped up in that one paragraph, that one kind of statement, there's a lot that goes in there that to, to make these kind of claims out in, in public is going to tick people off. It's going to offend people because right. he's, he's arguing for things here in this uh, that are not, not widely encouraged as being right. He's, he's making moral claims right. in this statement. Uh, he's making moral claims that he is claiming will lead to the best outcomes, right. but he's claiming it based on all the data. Right. You know? Right. And he's, and so he makes those positive claims and then he goes on, he says, let me make some negative claims. And right there at the end, uh, yes, societal ills, meaning homelessness, meaning depression, meaning murder, suicide. I mean, things that plague us. Do you want to begin to trace that back to a root? He says, let me tell you about a big old root. I mean, I'm thinking about oak trees. Uh, actually, I'm more aptly, I'm thinking about maple trees like I have in my front yard. Their roots are above the ground. Yeah, you'll find big old roots. And he's saying, you want to know about the biggest root of that? It is bad family structure. Mm -hmm. It is historic family strife, family struggle, divorce, and, and, and these issues. And so this is bold, um, but that's what's needed because I have felt, and frankly, as a person... Um, uh, 
my life, I consider my life interesting for a lot of reasons, but um, being born in 1980 and living 20 years before this new millennium, I really do believe that a lot of people, especially those who are progressively minded, look around and go, well, it's the year 2022. It's, it's not, we're not in the past century. We're not in the past millennium anymore. It's a new millennium. That means we got to throw off all the old ways because we're the humans who know. We're the people who, if we just start from scratch and do everything differently in the past, then we'll probably fix all of our old problems. What if we won't? Mm-hmm. What if we are retreading problems mm-hmm. that I'm not going to say were solved in the past because listen, we're never going to give the impression that we just know how to keep every marriage together in this podcast. This, right. this is difficult. <laughs> these are, these are weighty matters. But at the same time, if you want to have an honest intellectual argument about what's good for people in general, but children in particular, um, we're going to give it a lot of data that points to a powerful direction and it needs to happen. Because there are people walking on the streets, people going about their business, going to their jobs, shopping today, who literally think, oh, yeah, people used to stay together. uh, But, you know, we've worked it out to where we sort of start over in relationships every, whatever, 10 years or so. And uh, that's just as good. Uh, according to what measure is it just as good? Because I I don't think you can argue for it if you really look at the data. And, I mean, uh, if you look... (laughs) beyond the data to the important place, which is the scriptures. You just can't. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and you know, one of the, I'm going to go, kind of move to one of the later quotes on accident, but just because it's worth saying that um, people walk around thinking these things, thinking, ah, oh, it doesn't really matter if I get married and stay married. It doesn't matter. I can live however I want. Uh, maybe that's worked for people back then, but not anymore. It doesn't matter anymore. You can uh, a, a mom can raise a child by herself just as good. A dad can raise a child by herself just as good. Um, no problem. It doesn't doesn't have any better outcomes. Well, obviously the data we've already talked about, and we're going to get into right. would say otherwise. But this is largely what what the culture is saying. In fact, there was a an article, a New York Times article, uh, I think, an, and I think it was an opinion piece, but it was uh, uh, written by Christina Cross called "The Myth of the Two Parent Home," and it was making the argument that the two parent home is not better uh, than. The, than a one-parent home is not better than other right. situations, that children uh, are not set up to be better off by having two parents in the home than otherwise. And that is just utterly debunked in, in this article and in others that have been written to say, no, that's, that's baloney. Right. And, um, but largely, w- the reason kind of people go around thinking these things is because, well, there are various reasons, I'm sure, but, um, but because people are selfish. Mm-hmm. And what we're proposing here, uh, as far as how to live your life, largely involves sacrifice. Yeah. Um, you and I are, are both married, uh, and both married to wonderful women, um, who I, I would argue my wife makes it easy to stay married to her. She's right. great. Right. Um, but we both also still know that to maintain a marriage uh, takes effort. It takes yep. sacrifice. Um, it is easier in a lot of cases when marriages get hard to just say, you know what? I don't have to stay married to you. There's no, it, there's no benefit to me right. in that. I'm going to do what I want, and I'm and, and I'm going to leave, regardless in many cases of how it affects uh, our children that we might have. Right. Um, I grant you that's an oversimplification, maybe of a lot of the situations, but yet what we are still arguing is that the sacrifice is necessary, and for a selfish generation, sacrifice is really hard, mm-hmm. um, and 
in an, an attempt to not offend people, largely people walk around saying, oh, yeah, 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 uh, a one-parent home is just as good for kids as a two-parent home. Yeah. Um, and that's just a lie. It's not true. And we have to be willing to say that. You know, if right. we're going to be taking this stance, this is what Dr. Or is he Dr. Kevin DeYoung? Yeah. Dr. Kevin yes. DeYoung. Uh, that's what he's saying. He, he's saying, hey, I'm willing to stick my neck out, risk offending people, and say this is better. A two-parent home is better. Right, right. Uh, in, in a similar way to saying reasonable diet and regular exercise is the way you want to live. That's what we're advising here. Uh, listen, we're not saying I'm doing this perfectly. Mm-hmm. We're not saying I've always done this perfectly. We're not saying in 20 years from now, I'll walk around as the example of perfect health. What we are saying is the scriptures are clear and the data are clear and the culture is not. Mm -hmm. And in fact, um, I think we should be suspicious in a culture that is pretty much addicted to convenience. Look, divorce is going to pop up to every couple at some point as a convenience. Oh yeah. And there's going to be a thought in your head that, that looks at you square in the eyes and, and says to you, it would be easier to get out of this and to go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, if there's one thing that we can say today, I would want to say, uh, don't listen to that thought. Mm-hmm. Now at the end, I do want us to address some people end up there and they didn't plan to end up there. They didn't control it. Listen, Compassion, I feel enormous compassion, but also God works for good, all those who love him and are called according to his purpose, but we still have to look at what he asks of us Mm -hmm. and to say, okay, then what is best for us today? Mm -hmm. So wherever you find yourself today, we need to know what he is prescribing and be clear about it. And so yeah. that's where we want to be. Yeah. Um, so let me make one note, and then I want to move to uh, just a couple of personal questions, and we won't run on about these, but I think we should show our cards as far as kind of what our growing up experience is like. And then uh, you mentioned already that we're both married, each to a wonderful woman, and I agree with that, but then we should talk about our kids a little bit and just where we are on that. Um, and so my note that I want to mention as far as um, anytime you're talking about causation, uh, causation is a tricky thing. And... Uh, the one bit of advice I'd like to give at the beginning is I think Aristotle is the first uh, to really notice this, but it's useful for all of us that this idea called multiple causation, that when anything happens, yes, there are always multiple reasons for it. But what is handy and what is helpful to do is to try to isolate what is the one or two primary reasons for something happening. There are always going to be uh, other reasons why a thing happens, you know, uh, and, and, so I want us to keep that in mind as we are talking about background, as we are talking about issues that lead into flourishing for people. Um, and that's just going to be key uh, mm-hmm. as we move forward. So there's multiple causes for anything that happens. Um, but the only way you could get away from the truth of the matter that we're about to talk about is by refusing to look at the data on it. Um, so let's move to this. Um, I grew up. Uh, my parents were divorced when I was five. I don't have a memory of uh, my parents being together. And by together, uh, I, I don't have any sort of visual memory of them being in the same house as a married couple, nor do I have any memories of them particularly having a relationship uh, beyond basically I get dropped off. I mean, it's just enmity is what the Bible calls it, angry separation. 
And so that's there. Um, in large part, uh, I grew up uh, with a single mother, worked two jobs for me, for which I'm very thankful. Um, and then I grew up a lot at my grandparents' house. Uh, my relationship with my dad got a lot better when I was about 20. Um, and so long story short, when I look at all of what's talked about with um, divorce and issues related to it, I relate to all of it. I, I can think back on, on all of it, understanding what they're pointing to in this article. And, uh, and I did not see anything. Uh, look, and, and yes, I'm one, I'm one person with one ex set of experiences, but the social science, the data in here made sense with what I experienced. Uh, and frankly, uh, emotional challenges are a question I think for everyone, but I can certainly relate some of my emotional challenges when I'm 14, 15, 16 to mm -hmm. some of what uh, came from that. And so that's, that's a very short version of, of kind of where I come from and the family structure yeah. uh, that I come from. What about you? Yeah. So mine is, is different, but, um, also, not the kind of ideal that's mentioned in the article. Um, whereas uh, up until age 12, I had a uh, biological mother and father in the home. Then at age 12, uh, I was obviously still pretty young at 12. Um, my dad passed away. And so from, for all of my teenage years, uh, it was just my mom and five kids. So mm -hmm. I was the, I was the youngest of five. And, um, yeah, so my situation like yours is not the ideal. Um, and I definitely saw, I definitely, I, I, as a grown adult now, see so much of the value of having a father in the home um, that maybe I wouldn't have noticed before. And, and for me, like being 12 years old, I was old enough that I had already had a lot of experiences with my dad, a lot of good memories, mm -hmm. um, and even a lot of bonding as over um, over interests that we shared. Mm -hmm. So I played baseball. I loved baseball and my dad loved baseball also. Uh, he was obviously not playing baseball anymore. He was playing church softball, but, uh, uh, same diff, right? Just for, <laughs> for old guys. And so we, um, we bonded over that. And so I was old enough to have kind of a, a bond with my dad over specific things. Um, and then when he was gone, really felt the void of that, of not having him in that role. Um, now, as you mentioned, and we're going to mention again at the end, God was gracious. Uh, I think he was gracious in both of, both of our situations where even though we, um, we did not have the ideal two-parent home growing up our entire lives, we did uh, still end up in the right section of percentages. And I would say that was not chance. That was God's grace. That was his providence that, that brought us to where we are today. Um, I, I think so. Other people who, who maybe know me and you might say, maybe we didn't end up the greatest. I think I'm pretty uh, <laughs> psychologically and socially oriented. I don't know. But um, yeah, but I would, whatever goodness has become of, of my life and, and the person I am today, whatever good qualities there are uh, by God's grace. And I say that not to take anything away from my mom because I had sure. a great mom sure. like, you, like you did yep. who worked her tail off to make sure that all of us kids were provided for. She actually even still homeschooled all five of us kids mm -hmm. um, after that. And so, man, that's amazing. I, mm -hmm. you know, I, I can't say enough about my mom, but I think my mom, if she were here right now, would be saying the same thing I'm saying. Uh, whatever results were brought about in me and my siblings is due to the grace of God and yeah. his, his providence. Um, and yeah, 
Yeah, I um, just a, a funny note that I didn't know homeschooling existed until I was about 21. And uh, <laughs> in my hometown, uh, I think there's too many cornfields around us. We just didn't really know that it existed. And so public school was the way, and that's, that's all fine. Uh, and that's the way that was. Um, then the last personal note before we really get into data is this. You're on a parenting journey yourself right now, as am I. And so where are you in that? Uh, most days it feels like on square one is where I am, <laughs> yeah. but now I have a three-year-old and a one-and-a-half-year-old at home, two boys, and uh, in August we will be greeting our baby girl mm-hmm. coming in. August 25th is when she is due, and so um, I love being a parent, though. <laughs> being a dad is one of the most fun things I've ever had the privilege of doing. That's a cliche thing to say, I know, but... Uh, oh man, it is like, I'm always just having a great time with my, with my mm-hmm. boys, a three-year-old and a one and a half year old. And, um, you know, this morning my wife had a doctor's appointment and so I was home with them for a couple hours and mornings home with dad, um, with me and just the two boys are always so much fun. Um, but what I, I think maybe because of my experience and, and losing my dad when I was 12, um, I think maybe I feel the, the, the joy, the excitement of that, um, the privilege that I have to get to raise boys maybe a, a little bit more than I would have otherwise um, because I know the value of having a father. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see it also in the statistics that fatherlessness is such a heavy contributor to all kinds of negative outcomes. Sure. And so there's kind of a, a feeling of, as I'm raising these boys, of like, this is a God-given task sure. that I have that it is a tangible way in which I can have an, an impact um, in the lives of, of my children and by extension in society. Um, but most of all, uh, that it is a task by which I've been given to glorify God. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, yeah, it's an exciting thing. Don't have it all figured out by any means. I'm confused a lot of the time. Uh, but you know what? I think most parents are. I heard one guy say, uh, that you think when you're a kid, you think your parents have it all together and, you know, they just know what they're doing. And then when you have kids, you realize, no, nah, they didn't have any idea what they were doing because you don't have any idea what right. you're doing. So. Yeah, it's been amazing to me how much, uh, as a parent, the number of judgment calls every day as to how much to discipline. Do you let them have more of these things that they want? I mean, there's just so many judgment calls that uh, it is disarming. But I, I recently heard uh, things like this summarized in this way. Uh, responsibility is the pathway to meaning. Yeah. And um, having kids, uh, it makes you think about what you're doing. It makes you, uh, it makes you aware that what you do with yourself matters, how you treat them matters. And look, it is exhausting at times, but... Uh, nothing more rewarding out there and so uh i uh, also have a boy boy girl uh my two boys are six and four and then our girl is just about to turn one and um so we're early in the process as well um but i was thinking about it and i was like but i still feel i mean we're into it enough with enough experience if, if there's a multiplier when you get multiple kids then i mean uh hey we're getting somewhere. Six <laughs> yeah. times four is 24. So I, I feel 24 years in maybe. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. I don't know if it works that way, but uh, I definitely yeah, know what you're saying. You know what I think? I think fatherhood feels like to me, probably the closest thing, well, Lord willing, the closest thing I will ever know what it's like 
to be like at war or to be a soldier. Yeah. Um, because so much of what you do is just you do it knowing, and you read articles like this too, and it gives you kind of like courage. Like, okay, I've got, I've got, like you said, I've got uh, responsibility. I've got a purpose mm-hmm. uh, uh, to raise these kids and to do it well. Um, I think that's probably the closest thing I, I hope to ever come to feeling what it's like to be a soldier uh, in combat. Mm-hmm. This this drudgery, this hard thing that you are doing that is exhausting, that is tiring, that takes so much out of you, and that you have to give and give and give and give. And yet, there is so much purpose yep. and meaning to be found in yep. it. Uh, it's a, it's a, a, man, what a grace. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so let's let's jump into these uh, quotes here. Yeah, uh, before I start crying. Right. <laughs> uh, quote, family life in America has changed dramatically in a relatively short period of time. In 1960, 73% of children live with two parents in their first marriage. By 2014, less than half, 46% of children were living in this type of family. So in 1960, 73% of children lived with two parents in their first marriage. And by 2014, less than half of children were living in this type of family. Conversely, the percentage of children living with a single parent rose from 9% in 1960 to 26% in 2014 and an additional seven percent of children now live with cohabiting parents uh, end quote and so we start out by saying uh, if you look around and your sense is fewer people are staying married and that fewer children are growing up in homes with two parents then yes you're correct and in this country in the united states of america uh, this is a dramatic increase over, say, the last 50 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is an increase uh, of 73% of children with the two-parent home and then down to 46%. Uh, and so that's, that's a dramatic increase. Okay, well, what should we expect then? Uh, well, that is exactly what this next set of research is going to tell us. This is the dramatic change. So what does that mean for what we should uh, expect to see? Uh, Quote, in 1960, just 5% of all births occurred outside of marriage. In 1960, just 5%. That's amazing. It is. Uh, To anyone familiar with kind of happenings now, uh, by 2000, around 40% of all births occurred outside of marriage, uh, a percentage that has held steady over the last 20 years. Uh, So 40% of births. Yeah, and you know what's interesting too is... um, that number, so it's gone from 5% of all births occurred outside of marriage up to now in, two, well, in 2000, 40% of all births occur outside of marriage. And that is also with the increase in abortion access, mm-hmm. um, which obviously we've already talked about abortion yes. on a previous co- podcast. That's not the point. But you have to think yes. if, if abortion were not made legal, mm-hmm. what, how much higher would the numbers be even then? It's right. kind of an amazing thought as well. That's not an argument for abortion. Right. Uh, but it is even, it makes it even more kind of, it's even more saddening to think how many, um, how many births, what that percentage would be of, of births to, uh, births outside of marriage, how high that would be, uh, even still. And so what it, I would say should be, if it were, uh, pregnancies outside of marriage, the number would be so high. Right. Now you're just talking about children that get to the finish line of being born. Right. So this is not kids that are not 
murdered in the womb before they've had a chance to be born, right? So, so really that percentage should be way higher, uh, but yeah. And then um, we move to, to even more touchy types of subjects here with the next uh, statistic, quote, as of 2014, 29% of births to white women, 53% of births to Hispanic women, and 71% of births to black women were out of wedlock. 29% of births to white women, 53% of births to Hispanic women, 71% of births to black women were out of wedlock. And so we're talking about census data here. We're talking about how people mm-hmm. uh, identify themselves on census data. And and I want to point to something that is a different episode of Empires of the Future in the Past, and that is the episode about uh, family history and how uh, one thing as an American that is unique to us is we are so individualistic in part because we don't know our family history. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of people that I know have no idea where their name came from, what it means, what it means that they, they have a history in a different country. Uh, okay, so, but why does that matter? Well, we're, we're talking. I mean, I, I am immediately drawn to the thing you referenced earlier, the myth of the two-parent home. What is a myth? Uh, often we use it as a sort of, oh, the like a softer word for lie. But uh, in terms of, in terms of the background of myth, myth is a deeper story. It is a story that explains circumstances in some way, and it's important to know about Americans that most of us don't know much about the greater circumstances of our family into the past, and that is a that is a weakness that is uh, that gives us rootlessness and one of the things we're saying today is that rootlessness is very bad for a human to not know where you came from and to not have anywhere that you would want to say i came from there i mean think about what we're saying is a stable home is the place you could say that's where i'm from that's that's where i grew that's where i found out who i was you need that and as americans we don't have that in general some do mm-hmm. you know the roosevelts mm-hmm. uh <laughs> knew where they were from yeah. uh you can name certain American families, um, that gave them a great historical advantage to know where they were from. Many of these families brought wealth from Europe, and that was very good for them. Many of us come from poor backgrounds, didn't have time to keep family histories, were busy trying to put food on the table. Um, And so this whole issue is in the background of this as well, and I just want to point to that to know, like, okay, you're interested in this conversation. There are places to go beyond this that for answers. Some of the things that we hear and see about the struggles that we're having as a people in this country, um, you have to ask deep questions, but the answers are there. And so uh, we'll, we'll return to folks. We're focused on this issue for this mm-hmm. podcast, but there, there are many other places you can go if you want to begin to ask further questions about rootlessness, the effects on people and that kind of stuff. Um, and so then, quote, family structure and child well-being the conclusion that children raised by their biological married parents do better by almost every measure has been proven in hundreds of studies over the last several decades, end quote. Mm-hmm. There you have it. And, and you want details? We're going into details. But mm-hmm. um, anybody who hasn't dealt with social science, I, I just wanna, um, I want to say to you that Often it takes a lot of research and a lot of reading in social science, and often things are disputed as far as um, 
you know, something like, uh, does being taller get you uh, better jobs or this or that? Look, you're going to have to sort through a lot of data. Like, does it make you more successful if you're taller or what? Uh, you're going to have to sort through a lot of data. Right. This is not that kind of study. Mm -hmm. This is not like you do another study and you go, wow, that study there found the exact opposite. So that we're at a 50-50 split. We're not at a 50-50 split on this. Mm -hmm. And so let's go into those details. Why don't you carry on from there? Yeah, the next, next quote we have here says, one of the best and most concise summaries of the academic literature comes from a policy brief published in 2003 by the Center for Law and Social Policy. So, so notice that that is not a citation from a some conservative evangelical um, source. That is uh, as, man, by any standard neutral and reputable source you could find. Uh, says, quote, citing a 1994 study by Sarah McClanahan and Gary Sandifer in 2003 brief notes that children who do not live with both biological parents were roughly twice as likely to be poor, to have birth outside of marriage, to have behavioral and psychological problems, and not to graduate from high school, end quote. That is a, man, a weighty list of problems that come... From this, that stem from this one thing that is lacking, and that is not having both biological parents married in the home. Yep. Like that is one thing yep. that's that is a guaranteed leading to higher rates and all of these problems. Again, those problems being twice as likely to be poor and to have birth outside of marriage and to have behavioral and psychological problems and not to graduate from high school. In other words. This becomes a cycle. When you are living uh, and and when you produce this situation where you are not living as a married couple with your children in the home, then you are setting your children up to be in worse shape and to likely perpetuate the same issue to where they are likely to not graduate from high school, not have uh, children um, within marriage but before marriage. Um, and all of these things, which are, again, all of those same contributors that lead to the same thing going forward. And so it becomes a, a sort of cycle, um, one that easily gets worse and worse and worse and worse, as we have seen. Mm -hmm. um, and the, it all largely stems back to, not exclusively, but largely to this one issue of not having both parents in the home. Right. Uh, continues on, quote, importantly, not all types of single parent households fare the same. Children of widowed parents, for example, do better than children in families with divorced or cohabiting parents. Children of divorce are two and a half times as likely to have serious social, emotional, or psychological problems as children with intact families or children from intact families. Mm -hmm. Two and a half times as likely to have serious social, mm -hmm. emotional, or psychological problems as children from intact families. Yeah. So here's what's so wild is that like this is not all that new of information. Like this mm -hmm. is, we have been seeing the results of this. We've been having these studies, this research being done for some time now. And yet what do we still see happening from a, from a governmental, from a societal level is that uh, divorce is made more and more and more popular, right. easier and easier and easier as far as the, the legal system is concerned. Uh, by and large, divorce is being perpetuated mm -hmm. even though we see the negative effects that it has. And I mm -hmm. think that's a problem. And, and um, I think so much uh, of, of societal issues 
um, are tied to things like um, the the uh, acceptance of no fault divorce and things like that. Yeah. Things that are specifically uh, leading to the erosion of the of the nuclear family. Right. And I, um, I again, I'd like to put a put a pointer in the road, kind of a sign on the road that if if you want to know more, okay, like well this. Explain more about why this is happening at this time. Uh, you need to realize uh, that some of these things, society has been given tools, and we're using them without knowing what they will ultimately do to us. When, and I'm re- by tools, I'm referring to no-fault divorce as a tool. It is sort of marketed. I mean, even the name of it, no-fault divorce, as if then neither of you are at fault. When humans are at fault all the time, mm-hmm. and especially when you have angry separation of relationships, usually both people are at fault. Mm-hmm. And that is one issue. But then the other tool that I want to point to at this moment is in the early 1960s, you have the introduction of the birth control pill to society, which appears to us to go, ah, so we can have sex without consequences. And here we are then, 60 years later. Is that true? Do we now have sex without consequences? Uh, no. We, what we have is we have sex going a lot of different directions. And we basically, if you want to summarize a long story short, we argue about the consequences. Right. That, that's <laughs> pretty much where we stand right now. We are almost nowhere on a kind of societal agreement about consequences of sex. But we do know that 60 years ago, uh, the birth control pill came into existence. And we still live. I mean, I think it's, it's most helpful to think of it this way. We're still living in the experiment of what happens when you give a society something like a birth control pill. Uh, and I, what I hope is clarity. I mean, my first goal is just clarity about what has that done and what has it not done. Yeah. Because it certainly has changed things. But we are so prone to go, well, since I like it and since I find it convenient, I would like to believe that it's changed things for the better. Okay, but what if it's just more complicated than that and maybe some things it's changed for the better and maybe some things it's changed for the worse because most of the time any change leads to that, mm-hmm. that some things get changed for the better some things get changed for the worse. So I just want to point to that before what I find to be the punchiest line in this entire article, <laughs> which is that last bullet point there. Why don't you take that one? Yeah. So why is marriage so effective? Quote, David Rebar analyzes a number of possible mechanisms that make marriage so effective. Economic resources, specialization, uh, father involvement, parents' physical and mental health, parenting quality and skills, social support, health insurance, home ownership, parental relationships, bargaining power, family stability, net wealth, borrowing constraints, informal social network, Uh, and the efficiencies of married life. Uh, But then he goes on to say, Rebar concludes that while these factors often play a role in the benefits of marriage, the advantages of marriage are hard to replicate by augmenting these factors alone. In other words, the advantages of marriage for children appear to be the sum of many parts, and as such, the best policy interventions are those that bolster marriages themselves. Best policy interventions, yeah. yeah. What did I say? Polity. Oh, poly. <laughs> oh man, you can tell I'm a pastor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I just I remember when I got to that statement, and um, often 
I tell you, there's been a lot of articles that I've read where I've looked for a statement like that. Well, like, well, if you could give me one sentence, just to hit me with all of it, I mean, in rapid succession, I, f- I feel like uh, David Rebar here is like a boxer walking into the ring going, all right, look, if you want to know, I will hit you with about 20 jabs here mm-hmm. as to this is what we believe is going on. You can argue about which ones you think do more, less, but just all of those things you just ran down. Uh, leading up to what I think is a, a helpful kind of summary of things that I've noticed as a married man, the efficiencies of married life. Rather than one person trying to do all the things in a household, there are two people looking at that household going, this is, we're in this together. Mm-hmm. How shall we sort it out together? Yep. It's just more efficient. Think, think <laughs> about it this way. How much easier is bath time right. when you and your wife are both working on right. it? I think that's a really easy that's thing true. to think that's about true. because like yep. bath time for just me by myself or just Kaylee by herself, man, it can make you want to pull your hairs out. Yep. Um, I know it does me. Yep. Um, and yet to have one other person there uh, to help with efficiency, you know, yep. Hey, I'll wash you dry, you know, yep. kind of tr- yep. treat your kids like dishes. Yep. Um, only there's no dishwasher for kids. There's no kid washer yet. Uh, yet. <laughs> oh man. There's an idea for us to come up with. Um, that would be an empire for the future right there <laughs> is automatic kid washers. Uh, but yeah, just something like that. Like, yeah, marriage leads to efficiency, you know, and you can see it in a very small, but very tangible way when it comes right. to bath time. Right. So there's just a lot to think about in that one sentence alone. Um, but they carry on, quote, Katie Faust and Stacey Manning have summarized much of the primary source research in their 2021 book, Then Before Us, Why We Need a Global Children's Rights Movement. Again, we find that children reared in intact homes do best on educational achievement, emotional health, familial and sexual development, and delinquency and incarceration. One thing I was reminded of when I was reading this article, I've, uh, I've read a lot in the last 20 years about... Um, the background of teenagers about, um, well, frankly, about the idea of a teenager, which didn't exist anywhere until the mid-1900s. Uh, and, and this is, I mean, I read a book by a guy named David Hine called The Rise and Fall of the American Teenager, and it is so insightful and helpful. For anyone who has been a teenager, as well as someone like me who's worked with teenagers for 20 years, that um, this is a, a social construct in a sense. Look, look going from a child to an adult is not a social construct. It happens, but what is a social construct is the, your answer to the question of how do you societally take a child into adulthood? Um, and he, he gives amazing, uh, just summaries uh, of things like, well, look, if you want to know before the 1950s, what happened was if a young person started looking like an adult, they began to be treated like an adult and they began to work. Conversations began to happen about marriage. Now, we, I hear so much social science research and so much confusion about uh, what they call now extended adolescence, that if you tell young people, hey, you're supposed to be young and not grow up, um, infantilization, telling people to remain immature, um, to some degree, uh, parts of us like that a lot. Uh, Hey, keep having fun. Um, But then meanwhile, the parts of us that that are drawn to fulfillment are very frustrated Mm -hmm. 
But the fun elements, uh, a, a lot of us, and a part of all of us, would just like to cling only to fun and not take on any responsibilities of our life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I point to all this to say this reminded me of so much research that I have read about what you find in children who are raised in two-parent homes with, with connected families that, that don't look at family structure and just thumb their nose and kind of go, oh, that's the way they used to do it, but we've got new ways now that are working great for us. Listen, if you really think that, all I'm asking of you is please look into it. Right. Because I just, I disagree. I don't, I don't think we've solved anything. Yeah. I think what? we're rehashing old ground. Yeah. And that's so sad to me to yeah. make errors that have been made again, especially when we're playing with human lives, with right. young human lives. Yeah. I would like to know what metrics someone is using to say uh, the model that we are moving towards now is better than the model that we've been using. Yep. I would like to know what metric they're using because right. they're clearly not using uh, so, uh, sociological, sociological well-being, emotional health, uh, familial and sexual development, um, incarceration rates, uh, educational achievement, or even just basic uh, poverty. They're not right. using any of those metrics to come to that conclusion because right. all of the data is saying the opposite, right. that actually having biological mother and biological father married in the home raising you is the best outcome for children. And yeah, I mean, I, I love the name of this book. I've I never heard of it before uh, that reading this article, Then Before Us, Why We Need a Global Children's Rights Movement. And I'm like, yes, amen, we do. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a funny thing to say that me promoting marriage and having children within married life and staying married, that is a children's rights movement statement right there. Uh, but I mean, it's also good for, it's good for everyone. Right. Right. And if, so we're stating the positive side. Now listen to the negative side of this quote, children living with a mother's boyfriend are about 11 times more likely to be sexually, physically, or emotionally abused than children living with their married biological parents and children separated from one or both of their biological parents are 1.5 times as likely to experience financial difficulty six times as likely to have witnessed neighborhood violence, 15 times as likely to have witnessed caregiver or parent violence, 11 times as likely to have lived with a caregiver or parent with a drug or alcohol problem, and 17 times as likely to have had a caregiver or parent in jail. In short, there is virtually no measurement of well-being in which it is not a significant, indeed often life-altering advantage to be raised by one's biological and married father and mother. End quote. It sounds very much, and you, everyone listening might be thinking this, okay, you're just saying the same thing over and over and over again. And the answer is, yeah, basically, because every, the entire culture needs to hear it. And it's right. frankly ignoring it if they are hearing it. Right. It needs to be stated over and over again because the culture is saying the opposite. Right. right? And we're saying the culture is dead wrong. And all right. of those um, social scientists that are denying this, all of those... Uh, doctors and politicians who are denying this, they are all wrong and are leading you down a, a path of destruction, not one of flourishing, humanly speaking. Right, right. And, and you know, before, to anyone that might be listening, you go, wow, this sounds so heavy. Let me say it like this, though. Look, we have to know what up is. We, we have to know what, if you can make a goal, 
please make a goal for your family to stay together. I mean, the, the scripture says that the Holy Spirit convicts the whole world in regards to sin and righteousness and judgment. And the way I always think about that is the scripture, uh, the, the spirit convicts the whole world into sin. What is down? I mean, it's like gravity. You know what down is, but righteousness, you know what up is and judgment. And you know, the difference will be borne out sooner or later. Mm-hmm. And in, in the same way, you have to have orientation towards what is flourishing and what is going to lead to flourishing. And I don't want to throw out so many vulnerabilities to make you feel more anxious than you are. But look, um, frankly, I do believe in spiritual warfare. I do believe that Satan and the demons would love to destroy families. And I do believe that we have to know what flourishing is. We have to know what is good for us so that we can know what the vulnerabilities are and then that we can go towards the life that God has for us. Because the goal here is you have life available to you. All of these things we're talking about, the Lord can work through any of these things, but you got to trust in him. And especially if these vulnerabilities are there, please don't call them just, well, we do it different now. Um, these these are vulnerabilities. I mean, this last, this last paragraph is heartbreaking because these are people's lies when you're talking about abuse, yeah. when you're talking about sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, um, financial difficulty, when you're talking about neighborhood violence. I mean, I'm reminded when I read that, when I, uh, I listened to uh, Lecrae Moore's autobiography and hearing how he grew up in Texas and what he experienced. This is a similar story. Yeah. Single mom. Wondering about where his dad was, seeking that affirmation, going to, in his case, the streets to get it, and living that life for a while, and then soaking up everything that that life had. A, a guy lucky enough to kind of excel on the streets, but then finding himself still completely empty, completely frustrated. What about all the guys from his neighborhood who ended up dead? Mm-hmm. These are things that are in process and happening. And we can't afford to not seek the true answers to these questions. It's, it's, it's awful mm-hmm. uh, what we're living through. Yeah, that's exactly right. It, it, it is a true thing that, and it, man, as, as bothersome as this might be to some people, basically survey all of societal's, uh, of the culture's societal ills. I mean, basically all of them. Right. And every single one of them is heavily contributed to by this issue, not having a good two-parent household to grow up in. Like you change this one thing. If we could go right now, flip the switch, and and from now on, exclusively children grow up in homes where they have their biological mother and father married and raising them in the home within one lifetime you would see just uh, an extreme turnaround in the society, I believe. I believe. Um, now I'm not proposing that the society would be all Christian, and I know that you and I are pastors, and we need to clarify what we're saying here. We are not proposing that this is the road to Christianization uh, of society, but simply speaking, as far as human flourishing, what is good for society, this is the number one answer that needs to be addressed and needs to be um, stated frequently and loudly. Yep. Yeah. Um, so I want to be clear. We're going to move to, um, some recommendations that he has, uh, for church leaders. And then just some recommendations that, that 
are more personal to us about what do you do with all this? Because look, as we referenced in the beginning, we all found ourselves a part of a family that we didn't choose, we didn't make up. We're all a part of a much bigger story. And that's overwhelming. But we do also all contribute to the story of our family. So what should we contribute? Um, And so his recommendations. uh, First, he says, quote, pastors, Christian educators, parents, and church leaders need to do more to teach on this subject. Mm-hmm. I think that's absolutely right. And I, I say it's absolutely right because when I think about... when And let me ask you this. When you think about the church, what would you say um, is the number one thing in the church that you see contributing to lack of a two-parent home? That seems to be just, by by and large, somewhat accepted in the church. What would you say is the number one thing? I have an idea of what I think it is. Then you're going to have to tell. I'll me. just <laughs> I, I think it is um, um, sex before marriage. Oh, sure. Okay. I think that's probably the number one thing. And I think because it is so culturally accepted mm-hmm. that even in many churches, it is just accepted. Sure. Even if some people know it's wrong, sure. even if some people um, don't think it should be happening, mm-hmm. it's just accepted. And largely, it's not taught on in the church. Yeah. Um, I think we have somewhat taken for granted in the church, um, sexual teaching on sexuality and sexual behavior, um, because it's largely been ingrained in the culture up until recently. And it's the, the culture of the world has kind of taken over that area and we haven't fought to gain that ground back the way we should in the church. And so I've known many, many couples who are, are boyfriend, girlfriend, or even, you know, engaged and living together and no one has confronted them on that to tell them yeah. that that is wrong yeah. and sinful. Yeah. And so I, I would put that as probably one of the number one things, if not the number one thing that the church has not been fighting back against very heavily, uh, that is leading to these kinds of problems that lead to, uh, not having a, a healthy home life for, for children. Right. And I, to any parents listening, uh, as somebody who's worked with teenagers for 20 years, I, I beg you, Somewhere around age 10, 11, 12, have a conversation with your child, a beginning conversation about sexual desire, about the good purpose that God gives for sexual desire, but that that is meant to be expressed within marriage so that you need to paint a realistic picture of when can you get to a marriage then. And I'll show my cards to say, if you think it's outlandish to be, say, married in college, for instance, uh, I just disagree with you. Yeah. Um, I... I'm not saying every young person is ready to get married in college, but I'm saying if you, from the start, don't put that on the table, be careful that you aren't painting the picture, telling them be sexually disobedient and expect good results or expect it to work out fine. Um, A lot of parents I know are embarrassed about their sexual past, so they don't want to bring it up with their kids or they think they don't, know what a good plan is because of their sexual past but you have got to be honest with your kids about their bodies nobody if you want to wait other kids will educate them by middle school age Mm -hmm. they will if not before yeah you see that if you are letting that conversation go to someone else if you don't have that conversation um, about sexual desire that it is to be expressed in marriage and that then, yes, the primary purpose of sex is for children 
There are other purposes. Yeah. Sex is also for intimacy, for connection between a married couple. But we should not yeah. be embarrassed. Uh, we didn't make it up. I mean, biologically speaking, sex is for the procreation of children. Yeah. Theologically speaking, there's more going on there. Praise God. But we are so unbelievably reticent. It was too slow to talk about this. Yeah. And we have got to drop that. It, we have, we're not helping as as ministers, church leaders, uh, in, in, in not addressing this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the culture is so quickly seeking to uh, decouple, to separate yep. sex from childbearing, mm-hmm. uh, that it has to be the job of the church to reunite the two, to say, no, this is biblical, this right. is right, that the two are not separable. Right. It doesn't mean it's, the, like you said, it doesn't mean it's the only reason for sex, uh, but it does mean that it is the main reason, one of the main reasons, at least, you know, I'll, I'll even concede that we'll stop there and say it is at the very least one of the main reasons for sex. Right. I mean, look, I, I did a wedding last weekend and in my remarks were remarks about how, well, if we're here and, and we believe God gives marriage, we need to acknowledge that one of God's good gifts is children. We've, we've come so far and, and so afraid of looking uh, foolish in the eyes of uh, sort of the culture at large. Mm-hmm. Like, well, we don't want to be those Christians who talk about how sex is for children. Well, look, we believe that and more, and, and that's fine. And 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 look, a part of the problem is it, I, I think really uh, the story of the church in the 1900s. We gained so much sort of cultural cachet, so much respect. Let me say it like that. Mm-hmm. Well, we liked it so much that Billy Graham was a worldwide respected leader. We just got to drop that, speak the truth, and let it fall where it lands, yeah. and not be so defensive if people go, well, how laughable is that? Yeah. Listen, Christianity was laughable when it was introduced in the Roman Empire. Uh, we yeah. still have paintings of people bowing down to a donkey hung, hanging on a cross. If mm-hmm. we can't live in that, we are not following this Christ who was humiliated before these very Romans. Um, and so that's, that's the first place to start. I, I appreciate where yeah. you start there. Yeah. You know, Kevin DeYoung, uh, uh, obviously is, is on board with you that marriage and, and sex, uh, necessarily is a, is tied together with childbearing. Do you know how many kids Kevin DeYoung has? He has a lot. He has nine kids. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, holy mackerel. He's got a lot of kids. Practice is what he preached. Yeah. This he does. You cannot uh, say that he does not. I think that is fantastic. And, uh, and, yeah, I think that's cool. Right, and, and, and I mean, and just while we're being honest, no, I don't believe that you have to have the maximal number of children within your <laughs> ma- I don't, and, and, and that could be a conversation for the future. Or if anybody who hears this wants to talk more about it, I'm happy yeah. to talk more about it. But person. there's a very different thing bet- between saying you don't have to have the maximum number of kids that you can possibly have in your childbearing years. Right. There's a difference between saying that and saying uh, children are a blessing right. and should be treated and understood as such. Right. One is not a denial of the other. <laughs> right, right, right. right. So, Why don't you take second? Yeah, so the next thing he suggests, he says, second, we ought to encourage public policies that make pro-child marriages more attractive and less healthy family arrangements more difficult. Now, some people don't like the sound of that, um, but let me kind of give one of the things he lists. One of the things he says can be an example Um is that he says that divorce uh, can be made a little more difficult. Uh, And when he says that, he 
now some people are going to say, well, in situations where a woman is being abused and needs to get out of that, well, well, sure, that's, you know, we're, we're not really talking about that. And, and that's not largely kind of um, what's happening usually in, a, in these no-fault divorce situations. But he says a suggestion could be that the policy would be that the couple has to go through marriage counseling before they can get the divorce, at least sure. some sessions of marriage counseling, at least an attempt to try and salvage that yep. relationship. And I think that's, man, I think that makes good sense. I think if, uh, if you in the eyes of the law are making these vows to one another and the law is intrinsically involved and the government is, is concerned with this, um, then the government ought to be concerned with seeing that you hold true to the vows that you made to one another right. and the commitment that you made. Well, and, and to anyone who might be kind of reacting to that idea, I just want to, um, on a practical note, say that if you think, uh, most people don't think divorce is easy uh, emotionally. Most people know that, that emotionally there's a lot of strife and, and struggle. Um, but something that's not often talked about is uh, divorce is often very harmful financially, which means it's very harmful uh, to your lifestyle which could mean changing where you live uh, for both parties, uh, which could mean struggling to pay bills, not being able then to take care of your children, your needs. Uh, and, and I can tell you who is uh, very, very much benefited from the rise of no-fault divorce. Uh, one corner uh, of, of the country is divorce lawyers. Um, <laughs> who have ended up with family estates and uh, years of labor, uh, money from years of labor going to, to them. And uh, this is not to, to, to hate on divorce lawyers who do perform a service that unfortunately is needed, but in a lot of cases, the strife that comes from a divorce, uh, the only person winning is that divorce lawyer. Mm -hmm. You have two losers and then a divorce lawyer. And yeah. that is... And that, I think, makes what you just said a lot more sensible. Yeah. You don't want counseling? What, do you just want to wake up $30,000 less rich in a few months and then look around and go, well, I didn't think that through at all. Yeah. Um, because there's, there aren't a lot of great options when you begin to move this direction. It's yeah. hard in many ways. Yeah. Uh, the next one that he, that he has here, he says, third, we should consider how... How we have normalized behavior that harms children and does not lead to human flourishing. And um, this actually, in this yeah. section, brings up one of what was my favorite quote in the whole article. And, um, and it, it says this. I think this is a great word. He says, This may sound unloving at first, but we must re-stigmatize fornication and promiscuity, hmm. cohabitation and no-fault divorce. Social approval for behaviors that used to be considered sinful or at least inappropriate and unwise has been a powerful force in changing the state of marriage in the West. Stigma often speaks louder than dogma, end quote. Hmm. Um, man, stigma, that word in our culture today is like the worst possible thing ever, yeah. right? Um, we hear about all these things. Oh, it's got so much stigma. Oh, it's so stigmatized and, and that's a bad thing. Oh, we need to destigmatize all of these terrible things. The argument that Kevin DeYoung has now made here is that actually stigma is good sometimes. Uh, and there are things that ought to be stigmatized. And, you know, in the things that I hear about, normally I'm thinking almost everything that the culture says needs to be destigmatized. 
I think needs to remain stigmatized by and large. Um, but the point he's making here, and, and some are going to take offense to this, and that's fine, but um, he is not saying that people need to be stigmatized, that we should look down on people, and that when, for example, if a woman has uh, gets pregnant outside of wedlock, that she should then be shunned, treated badly, right. this right. or that. No, in fact... Uh, what he would argue for is that that woman should be cared for, loved, and that when the child is born, that child should be celebrated as a blessing, as new life, as an image bearer of God. All of that should happen. Yet, uh, sex before marriage, right. uh, which he calls fornication, ought to be stigmatized, ought to be looked down upon, uh, not normalized right. and accepted. And I think that's exactly right. And so I, I am for stigma uh, around certain things, certain activities, certain behaviors. Well, let me say this a different way. I mean, this article actually appears in uh, what is called Akon, uh, not the rapper. Uh, this is spelled differently, <laughs> E-I-K-O-N, and I uh, looked up what the Greek word for Akon means, and it's an image. Uh, but this is a journal for biblical anthropology. Um, now, I don't know how interesting that sounds to anyone, but here's what I do believe is interesting. In the Bible, you're given a picture of what is human flourishing, human wholeness. And I'd like to summarize it because what, what point three there kind of brings to my mind is, okay, but what is human flourishing? Well, I'd like to point to two huge concepts, and that is uh, spiritual uh, maturity and then spiritual health, which are, are two different things. Um, but spiritual maturity, I think, is most easily summarized in uh, the virtues, which are prudence, temperance, justice, fortitude, faith, hope, and love. When you are mature, you're able to act with those. Prudence, temperance, justice, fortitude, faith, hope, and love. Now, spiritual health, which is different, I think is best summarized by the fruits of the Spirit, which are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I say these things to say, when you prop up, when you say something like, we, can, we should consider how we have normalized behavior that harms children. Well, how could we possibly... We, we didn't do that. Surely we didn't do that. Mm. Well, what we did is we said, let all the people do what they feel like doing, and it'll probably turn out fine. I don't think so. Um, meanwhile, I just want to be really clear that in, in, in the scriptures, spiritual health is very plain. Uh, and, and by the way, if, if you're wondering about the opposite of spiritual health, it's right there. Uh, it's the less quoted portion of Galatians 5, which is the 16 obvious acts of the sinful nature. Mm -hmm. But the fruits of the Spirit are there. That is spiritual health. Meanwhile, spiritual maturity, I, I got this list, uh, one of the books that I think we're going to talk about before too long. Uh, Mere Christianity is the first time by C.S. Lewis, the first time I was introduced to prudence, temperance, justice, fortitude, faith, hope, and love, uh, that these are the first four are the cardinal virtues that pretty much everyone agrees upon, and then the last three are theological virtues. Um, but the whatever new model we are supposedly going towards, and that's part of the criticism, is there is no new model. There is just do as you please. It's not working. Right. And especially it's not working for children. Right. It is dramatically harmful for children. Right. Um, and we've got to acknowledge that. We are playing with people's lives here. That's exactly right. Yeah. So what you're proposing is life in accordance with the way God has designed human beings to live. Right. I mean, that's, what, that's really all we're saying here. And that what this data demonstrates 
is that when we as as individuals, this is not even just Christians, it's true of, for Christians, but it's true of society at large for non-Christians and Christians alike, that when you live outside of the way God designed human right. beings to live and to operate, uh, that it does not lead to human flourishing. It right. leads to negative outcomes, bad outcomes, suffering, all kinds of, of bad things. So that we see then that when you do live according to God's design, design even for non-Christians, right. they benefit from that. Like right. they get to experience God's common grace right. in that if they get married and commit themselves to right. one another, a husband and wife uh, in marriage the way God designed it and procreate the way God designed it and stay together as a nuclear family the way God designed it, all of the studies, all of the research demonstrate to us that that produces the best outcomes period right you know so as christians it should come as no surprise to us we say oh well yeah god designed it that way obviously doing it that way uh would lead to the best outcomes and yet in churches today we see a lot of people rejecting that design and trying to do it their own way right so yeah so i mean we've ended up at a natural law conversation in a lot of ways and so all of this is under the umbrella of humanly speaking and then god works and and we are thankful for the way god works but we he does not want us to have to be confused as if on Monday, he's for marriages, and on Tuesday, he goes, oh, well, people just do as they please. It's great. Uh, no, he has ways. And so, and then fourthly, let's, let's go ahead and, and finish his last yeah. uh, recommendation. Uh, quote, unless called to singleness for kingdom purposes, we must encourage Christians to get married, have children, stay married, and raise those children in a stable two-parent family, which is basically what you just said. Yeah. Amen. What a good thing to call people to. As, I mean, if my pitch wasn't strong enough... Uh, for how awesome being a dad and a, and a husband is. Um, let me just say it again. It's awesome, and it's a good thing to call people to. That's a part of it, too, is that what we're calling people to is not just what well, what Kevin DeYoung is and what we are, but ultimately what the Bible is calling people to is not just sacrifice, 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 sacrifice. It's going to drain everything out of you, and you're going to get nothing out of it. No, that's, that's not the case. In fact, what you're going to get out of it is a great amount of joy, of satisfaction, of purpose, mm-hmm. all of that stuff. Um, and if you do it according to the Word of God, um, then you're going to reap a lot of benefits from this as well, not just your children. Right. And so, man, if there was ever a, a pretty good thing to call people to, it's, hey, get married, have kids, raise those kids, and stay married. Like, that's a great thing to call make, people make to. Make that a goal, yep. Yeah, what, yes. a, what a simple yet beautiful goal to uh, to put in place. Right, and I, um, so we'll transition. As I was reading this article, I knew we would want to come to some points of summary because, look, I know wherever you find yourself hearing this, and even as I'm reading this, that tension is there. Okay, what, I can't remake my family, but I do have influence in my family. Okay, so what do I do with this? Well, the first thing I was thinking was uh, think vertically and speak boldly. And it's basically this. You need to realize that there are long-term consequences to the actions that we take. But we're, it's going to call for boldness no matter what. You're going to have to be willing to say things that are not popular in your everyday life, uh, in social media, uh, but really even more importantly in your everyday life. You're going to need to have these conversations with your children um, and ask questions like, what do these current trends mean for children and their well-being? Uh, and I know a lot of this sounds simple, but really by sounding simple, what we're saying is it's worth fighting for. Mm-hmm. It, it, it is worth stopping other things. It is worth pausing the TV show that you might be in the middle of to go, 
we've got to talk more about what happens and and stop letting all this stuff just sort of flow. Mm-hmm. Um, because another thing that I wanted to say about this is this reminds me of, of reading that I've done um, about marriage in class structures mm-hmm. that frankly in the, in this country and other countries, the rich know this stuff. The rich right. know how costly it is to get divorced. And as a result, guess what? The rich don't get divorced. Right. <laughs> I mean, you need to hear that. Yeah. Um, the poor in part stay poor because they have destroyed family structures and that's there. Um, and, and, I don't want to live among a people who are mad at people just because they're rich. Mm-hmm. But I also don't want to live among a people who blame all their problems on the rich. Right. Uh, it's just not like that. Right. Um, if you want to know one thing you can do to increase generational wealth, wealth that you can pass on to your kids, I mean, just the good kind of wealth. So your kids don't have to get a bad loan on their house. So your kids don't have to go into crazy debt to go to college. Stay married. Yep. I mean, and, and listen, these rich folks you hear about who send their kids to Harvard and Yale, even if their marriages aren't going so great, you know what they do? They stay in them mm-hmm. because they know a clear way to decline in many ways is to get divorced. Mm-hmm. So again, not advocating for say loveless marriages, right. but there's knowledge here to be had. And if you don't take it, it is to your detriment. Right. Yeah, you know, and and I think one of the cool things too, one of the next points that I think we can we can kind of come to some some consensus about is is to speak clearly about how sex is good as intended by God within marriage. Um, you know that that yes, the primary purpose of sex is to have children. Yes, the secondary purpose of sex is pleasure, bonding between married man and a married woman. Um, you know, but children are no accident related to sex. Right. These are just thoughts I'm coming up with as, uh, I'm, as I'm sitting here. Um, oh, wait. No, no, these are the thoughts you had written down. What a coincidence that I was... Oh, wow. Uh, no, but it is true, though. But one of the things I would want to say is that, uh, you know, as we talk about this and, and marriage and staying married and raising kids in that environment, you know what this means is that investing in your marriage is also an investment in your kids. Right. This is a good excuse to... Maybe get a babysitter and go to date night every now right. and then. This is a good excuse to make sure you are enjoying your your wife or enjoying your husband, um, pouring into that relationship. It is all. I think it's it's especially easy when kids begin to get a little older, sure. um, maybe into the grade school, you know, early teenage years and above. You begin to pour all of your mm-hmm. energy exclusively into your kids, and I think to an extent, do what you said at the beginning, which is idolize parenting. Um, and you fail to pour into one another. Um, but the the data would tell us that pouring into each other in order to bolster and build a strong and good marriage is going to lead to good outcomes for your kids. Right. And to, to every man who has some sense that, well, I see how devoted my wife is to the nurture and growth of our children. There's something in a man that still drives him to give his wife a lot of attention. That's good. Yeah. One day, by God's grace, your children will grow up and be gone. And that marriage that you have built will still be there. Yeah. You need to nur- nurture that marriage and not let it be taken over by the very difficult task of raising children. Yep. That is that is especially a man's responsibility within a marriage to 
remember that you take care of your wife first and your children, mm-hmm. but that she should be a focus for you. Yeah. And that she seems uh, more likely to focus on the children, but there's something in a man that says, well, I want to keep some of my focus on my wife. <laughs> yeah. That's good. Yeah. That's good. And you're going to need that. And that is, God built this stuff into us on purpose. Yeah. And we have forgotten a lot of things that are, are for our good. Yeah. And so that's just a great moment of encouragement yeah. uh, for that. Hold on to that right. second purpose of sex, which is, which is for pleasure and for uh, strengthening that bond between a man and a woman. And keep having sex. And I think this is one thing to say. This is maybe, a, this is not a sex podcast, but... Uh, I I would encourage all married couples, whatever your excuse is, if you do not have a a active sex life in your marriage, then your marriage is lacking, yep. and there's a there's a lacking of intimacy that can begin to be built and strengthened by engaging in sex with one another. Yep. Do that; it was given by God yep. for that purpose as well, and right. so make sure that you are engaging in that. Yes, as as well as sharing things that you do together if you like to go out to eat do that find things that you still do together don't lose your marriage because you became two people who were very interested in raising kids there's just more going on there yeah um i I, this is uh, something i've picked up over the years and i'm sure you have too that we need to speak clearly about what a blessing children are yes they are a responsibility yes there are hard days but there is no greater joy uh the the highs are high the lows are low but listen the highs are then high again it's it is wonderful to have children and we often i I don't know what it is i I just feel that we often speak more of the negatives than the positives to it yeah i yeah i hate it i hate hearing that kind of language talking about kids and i you know you you don't hear it all that often from people who have kids um for various reasons maybe it's they would feel guilty talking about that but i think largely they're experiencing the blessings of having kids at that point yeah maybe not always the case but you hear it a lot from, um, I hear it most from people who are maybe approaching that age, maybe are already married, but don't have kids yet. Um, maybe it's fear leading them to only see the negatives of, of children. Yeah. Uh, maybe it's selfishness thinking I get, we get to do what we want with each other whenever we want. We travel, yeah. we do this yeah, and that. Yeah. There's all kinds of reasons. But all the time I'm hearing children talked about uh, with regards to the negatives only. And I think that is, um, oh man, that's... How often does the Bible talk about children as in a negative light? Answer, never. Right. Never. Ch- childbearing is never a negative thing right. Thing in the Bible's um, understanding, and therefore it shouldn't be in ours either. Right. Uh, on a side note, I've picked up that um, often we blame our parents for our problems, and I think that's come with a very strange kind of psychological handicap that we're scared to have kids because then we might mess them up and then they might blame us for their problems. Yeah. Uh, I just want to encourage people, you don't have to view having children as some kind of burden that you couldn't bear. Now look, if you, if you really say to God, show me what my heart ought to be about this, and you still don't find it that you have a desire to have kids, then don't. I don't encourage anybody who doesn't want to have kids to have kids. But I do want to say, we are in a very strange place to where it's almost a little bit cliche to just come out and say, man, I love my kids. Mm-hmm. Um, meanwhile, I would just like to compare it to, what's the last 10 things you've heard somebody say about their dog? Oh, I love my dog. Yeah. Oh, it's my, it's, it's, let me show you. <laughs> and and I, we are just in a weird, weird place when 
it is not cliche or not strange to have someone go on and on about their dog, mm-hmm. but it is strange to think of someone really just saying, frankly, like, and I'm not, I love my kids. I'm very thankful. I'm, I'm glad it's the best mm-hmm. thing I ever did. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think that's really odd. Yeah. This might be a hot take as well, but I really don't like it and find it to be kind of, uh, kind of dumb when people talk about their dog or their cat as their kid yep. or, or talk about it as a, uh, in the same kind of thinking as, as an actual human child. Yep. I think that is, well, I think it, that contributes to the problem yep. uh, that we're talking about here. And let me tell you, man, I, I had a dog up until this last year and she died and it was really sad because, uh, man, I, I loved that dog. She was great. Um, but, she was not a child right. and was of infinitely less value than any of my children. Mm-hmm. Um, infinitely, as in like, um, if, if there's a fire in our house, the dog is not even going to cross my mind until well after my children are right. safe and outside. Uh, or, or for example, um, whenever there was, my dog was got real sick one time and we were kind of saying, okay, what do we do? It's the weekend. We called and they said, well, if you bring the dog in, I mean, we're basically guaranteeing you what we would do for her symptoms. You're looking at a, at a $1,500 vet bill. And we're like, well, let's just hold out, see if she can hold, hold on till Monday. Uh, and right. she and did, she but was, here's the thing. She was older. and she, yes. Yeah, she was older, and, but yeah. she's a dog. Right. And, and you have to have those kind of limitations. Um, and certainly we did. Um, if my child were ever sick right. and they said, well... Just so you know, if you bring your child in, you're looking at fifteen hundred dollars. I would say, I don't, I don't care an ounce how much money it takes. Make sure that my child is okay. Uh, uh, you right. Know? Which you've just given one great reason why you don't call your dog your child, because then you go to the veterinarian if they say eight thousand, if they say sixteen thousand, if they say twenty thousand, then you say, well, it's my child. What is, what would <laughs> a person give their child? Yeah. You you got to keep your head in the game on this. You yeah. can't just be walking around. Uh, you don't think straight if you yeah. don't think. If you don't think according to the way things actually are in reality, then you won't be able to think straight to make decisions according to reality. Yep. To all of you dog owners out there, my kids are better than your dogs. Fight me. <laughs> uh, the last thing I have on this is praise God for the gift of the family. Uh, it's a great idea. It, it is God's idea. Amen. And he is the one that gave it. He knows best about it. And that's, uh, that's really where we land today. Amen. That's awesome. Well, hey, I think that's going to wrap it up for us. Um, but uh, we, we've wrapped it up, and we've been here for, for some time talking now. But we appreciate everyone who's made it this far on the podcast. Uh, this has been Empires of the Future. And we'll see you in the future. <laughs>